kingdom on this earth? Or are we about our own kingdoms? Are we about our own way of life and, and securing our own comforts? Or are we about His business and His work? Are we about other things? And the, the thing to really keep in mind is the kingdom of Jesus is eternal and our kingdoms in this world is temporary. It's a temporary comfort. If we, if we strive for comfort, it's temporary. If we strive for money or fame, it's temporary. If we strive for power, it's temporary. We eventually get old. We lose things. We can get things strip, stripped away from us. And so are we about other things, temporary things, the stuff of earth, the purposes that the earth drives us toward, the power or pleasures of temporary flesh and blood, or are we about the eternal kingdom of Jesus? And so as we go into what Peter has to say about this, living for the eternal kingdom of Jesus, we need to keep those questions in mind. What does it mean to live for something? And am I living for Jesus? Is that the something Is that the someone that I'm living for? And all of us, I've often said, uh, as I've preached in different passages of Scripture, because you see it so often, but all of us are worshipers. We're created in the image of God to worship, and we are all worshiping. We're either worshiping the Creator, or we're worshiping the creation. We're worshiping idols, or we're worshiping the Creator. It's one or the other. But we're all worshiping. All of us in this room are worshipers. All of us out of this room today in various places are worshiping. And we're going to worship someone or something all of the time. And the question for our own souls as we evaluate our lives and our, uh, the way of being that we have is, are we worshiping Jesus? Are we worshiping the Creator? Are, are we worshiping the King? Is our life about Him? And when you dig into what worship is about, it's really about a way of life. It's not just those single moments where you're praising the, the thing that you're worshiping, but it's how does that idol there affect the way that I live my whole life? And when you go into foreign countries like India uh, or Mongolia where there's Buddhism or India where there's Hinduism or uh, other places around the world of Jainism or other types of, very, uh, of religions that are very focused on actual physical idols, which we don't see in our country very much, right? But that idol affects the way they live every day. Right? That idol affects the way they live every day. Every day they're going to go make some kind of sacrifice. But the way they live in between that making of sacrifice, that's affecting the decisions that they make. Because if I make this decision, the God of this valley or that God uh, who's overseeing this town or this region or fertility, they're going to bless me with children, or they're going to bless me with riches, or they're going to bless me with protection from something. And so the way I live here and now with that idol in mind affects everything that I do in my life. And the same is true of the one true God. The way that we think about the one true God should affect the way that we live every single day of our lives. So with that, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 through 18. Let's read it together. 3, verse 11 through 18. It says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in Him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to his wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks, of, uh, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, in about 30 minutes or less, we're going to think and study uh, the whole book of Second Peter. Okay, <laughs> really quick, because this passage that we just read is a summation of everything that Peter has just gone through in more detail. And there's a few specific things that he gives us. And the big idea uh, that we really want to start with in, in mind is that idea of living for the eternal kingdom of Jesus. So think for just one minute when you go back to verse 14. He says what? Be diligent to be found in Him without spot or blemish and at peace. How good does that sound? When Jesus comes back one day in power and authority with His legions of armies, it's going to feel really good to be at peace in that moment, right? Not uncomfortable with His return. Not wondering in His return. But at peace when He shows up. That's the kind of attitude we want to have in our hearts. So, if we jump back to chapter 1, verse 11, it says this, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 11, that's what it says. And there's a lot of context before that. But what Peter is calling us to is this is what we want, right? We want to be at peace when Jesus comes. We want to have what it says here in verse, chapter 1, verse 11, which is a rich entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's what Peter is calling us to. That's what he's reminding us of. We all want that. We all want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? If you remember Jesus' parable uh, in Matthew and in other gospels, right? To hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, when the master returns because we were faithful and we stewarded things well. We were a faithful servant. We want to be ready. We want to be at peace. All believers Deep down inside, they want that in their hearts. And so, when we go back to chapter 3, verse 11, and we look at this, and we see that Peter was talking about this in chapter 1 as, as well, he's saying in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought ye to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord? And if you skip down to verse 14 there, you see another call, and that's to be diligent to be found in Him without spot or blemish. 
And so what he's calling us to here is to remember in chapter 1, verse 11, what did he call the kingdom? The eternal kingdom, right? At the end of verse 18 there, he says, to the day of eternity. He calls it the day of God. Elsewhere, it's called the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. So all of this, the purpose of all of this, both in actually the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, he says is to stir up our minds to remember. Because I want you to remember, and I want you to remember one really big thing, and that's that Jesus is coming again. Okay, so remember to live, he basically says here. Remember to live for the eternal kingdom of Jesus, and not for yourselves. And that's really the meditation of this morning. And to do that, I want to just point out four quick things that he wants us to remember with that big idea in mind. Number one, Peter wants us to remember the reality of eternity. Okay, He wants us to remember the reality of eternity. That's really what all of chapter 3 in 2 Peter is about. The day of the Lord will come. The day of God will come. The day of eternity will come. So remember the reality of eternity. The second thing he wants us to remember is the call to godly living in light of that return. So when that is a reality, there's a call connected to that. It says this is in the future, so right now there's a call to godly living in the meantime, to faithful and fruitful living. If you look again back at chapter 1, what does it say? If these qualities, and he talks about these things that we add to our faith He says, if you have these qualities in you and they're increasing, chapter 1, verse 8, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. And so the idea there is a faithful and fruitful life is a life lived in light of that eternal reality that actually changes the way the day-to-day life takes place for me and the way that I think. So Peter wants us to remember the reality of eternity. He wants us to remember the call to a faithful and fruitful life. Number three, he wants us to to remember the danger of deception. That false teachers will lead you to temporary pleasure, but eternal pain. Okay, That's what false teachers will lead you to. And that's everything that chapter two is about. And then number four, he wants us to remember the anchor of truth, which is the promise of Christ's return and the testimony of the Scriptures. And you see that beginning in chapter 1, 16 through 21, verses 16 through 21, he's talking about the prophetic word. That, hey, we're not following the myths and the teaching of men. We're following the prophetic word of God. And he sets that in chapter 1, but then he repeats it all the way through the book. Um, And primarily, uh, again, in chapter 3, verse 2, he references that again. You'll see there that he says that in chapter 3, verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets in the commandment of the Lord. And so he's referencing, he's anchoring our souls to the reality that when we remember the reality of eternity, when we remember the call to a godly life, when we're aware of the dangers of deception, that all the while in that we are to be anchored to the truth of the prophetic word of God, the scriptures that were given to us, and the promise of his return. So those are the four things that really throughout the whole book are the primary themes that say, okay, remember to live for the eternal kingdom of Jesus. And how we do that is to remember that there's a day of the Lord that's coming. And He's not 
forgotten that promise. He's not slow to bring about that promise. To remember that you're called in the meantime to live a godly life. To remember that there's real dangers of deception and false teachers that will lead you away from those two things. They will lead you away from having eternal mindset. They will lead you into temporary pleasures and sensuality and so on that he speaks about throughout chapter 2. And that the way that we keep those things at hand is the anchor of the prophetic word. So, number one, let's look at these really quick. Number one, the reality of eternity. Remembering the reality of eternity. Verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 10, and 11, or, uh, 10 through 12 that we just read. Right? If we back up one verse from what we just read, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Now, what does it mean that it'll come like a thief? It means he's going to come at a sort of unexpected time, right? And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works, and the works there that are done will be exposed. And then he says, since these things are going to take place, how ought you to live? Well, you're to live in a holy life and a godly life, right? So remember the reality of eternity, chapter or, or verses 10 through 12. So the Bible says in Proverbs that without vision, you guys will, I'm sure will know this, right? Without vision, which is without revelation, what? People perish, right? People perish. So without a vision, without revelation, which speaking primarily of the revelation of God's word, Right? The revelation that this is a reality that's going to happen. So when we have the vision and revelation from God of what is going to take place, this reality of eternity, that gives us, we get to see the end goal. That's what vision is. We, we get to see the end goal. We get to see the outcome in front of us. And when we forget that outcome, when we forget the reality of what will take place in the future, we get lost. We lose our way. We're not willing to suffer for the end now. We're, we want to find the comfort in the temporary because we lost vision for what is in the future. And this is the beautiful thing about Christians, right? Is, is when you read, you know, whether it's business books or personal development books or these kind of things, right? It's often, hey, you need to create a vision. You need to, to, to create a vision for your life or for your business or sometimes for your church. You'll get that kind of worldly philosophy sneaking in to how the church is. And here's the, here's the difference. There are part truths in that, right? But here's the difference. We do not create our vision. We discover our vision in the Word of God. We discover God's vision, God's mission for us in the Word of God for us individually, for our families, for our marriages, for our kids, for our businesses, for our churches. We discover God's vision for those things. We don't create them because we, have, we like this versus that or we have a whim here or there or we have a passion about something that doesn't align with this book. If it's not in alignment with God's vision for the family or God's vision for the church or God's vision for business, then we get rid of that and we get to what God's vision is. And when we lose sight of that vision or we put a false vision in place, then we lose our way. And the enemy desperately tries to get us to forget about eternity and live for the here and now. And that's one of the big dangers in the deception, both in our own hearts and out in, in the church in false teachers and out in the world in scoffers. It's to 
in, he uses, the enemy uses those different things, the fleshly temporary, the false teaching, and the scoffers' impression, persecution from the outside to get us to forget about the future return of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, and to live for the here and the now. So this means for us, church, that, that God has set before us in His Word a vision for the future, a vision of eternity, of forever, of a new heavens and a new earth in perfection. And this means that this world is not our home. It means that we're citizens of another country, another world, which makes us strangers and travelers. We're just passing through. We're pilgrims. The Bible even calls us exiles in this world. And that makes us weird. It makes us fill out a place. I was just having dinner with, we were having dinner with um, some friends of ours. And he's like, I've never felt at work and in different places more out of place right now than I ever have. I've never felt more out of place in my workplace where everybody's supporting these causes and things that I disagree with and I'm feeling the pressure of out of place. And that's good. We should be out of place in a world that doesn't worship the Creator God. That doesn't think and have the vision that the Creator God gives us. We should have a weirdness about us in that. We don't fit in. I'll read a couple verses here. Philippians 3.20, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.8-10 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place, and that he was to receive as an inheritance. And so he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith He went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's looking for a different city, a different world, a different kingdom. And so he left without knowing the end goal, but seeing a vision from God getting there. He he didn't know the, the way in between, but the end goal he had from God, and he went there, and he lived by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.12 says that we are ambassadors of Christ, making known God's appeal to man, right? God making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. We are ambassadors. The language of ambassador is what? Different country, foreign country, home country, foreign country, different than your home, You go and you represent a kingdom. That's who God says we are. We are ambassadors from His kingdom in this foreign land. And in that, as a church, I often call the church like embassies, right? They're little unit embassies of multiple ambassadors that work together for the sake of the homeland. And so as individuals, we're ambassadors. As church, we're embassies of God's kingdom. And that's where the world looks on and they see the difference of God's people and God's kingdom. It says, it says you, they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. So there's a way in which we live in the embassy that they look at and they go, wow, they live differently than we live out here. They have something different. Their disciples, oh, they come from that kingdom. They come from that land. And sure, some people will go, oh, I want that. Other people will go, that's weird. And they'll scoff at you for it. Just because they recognize we're disciples doesn't mean they're going to join our team, 
right? We're still going to have the scoffers, as Peter also says at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come. Not everybody's going to join the team. Not everybody's going to believe just because we're faithful ambassadors or good embassies. 1 Peter 2, again, Peter talks about this same concept in his first letter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, which is travelers and exiles, which in the King James, pilgrims, right, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So this is reality. This is the reality of the ter- eternity. And the question is, will we believe God? Will we believe His Word, His, the prophetic Word, His promises? Or will we love this world and the things of this world and not really take God and His Word seriously and rather give in to the temporary? Give in to the cravings of the flesh and the pleasures of t- the temporary world around us. Rather than live for the eternity that's before us. So number one, remember the reality of eternity. Number two, Peter wants to remind us to live a godly life. The call to live a godly life in light of that eternal reality. And that's where he picks up in uh, verse 11 in chapter 3. He says, since all these things are going to happen, right? Since, since this world is going to z- dissolve and be destroyed by fire, just as Noah's world, he says earlier in chapter 3, just as no and chapter two, just as Noah's world was destroyed by water, this world will be destroyed by fire, just as sure as Noah's historical event happened, the future event will happen. And since all these things are going to take place, since the new heavens and the new earth, not just the negative of judgment, but the positive of a new perfect world, since all of this is going to happen, what sort of people ought we to be in lives? of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the day of God. So there's a few things he he says here. He says, when we have a proper, proper biblical view of eternity, that should motivate us, as verse 14 says, to be diligent, to be found faithful and fruitful. And he uses the word holiness, which means to be dedicated or devoted to God, which is who or what. If we ask the question, okay, Holiness is to be de- dedicated and devoted. It, it, you don't have to just be holy toward God. You could be holy toward something else. We, we think of holiness weird sometimes, right? We think of like, oh, those guys are really holy because they just go and live in the mountain and, and you know, they don't have any interaction with people and they just kind of survive there until the end comes, right? That's not holiness. Holiness is simply being dedicated or devoted to something, set apart for something. So, to be holy in this context and in Scripture is to be dedicated and devoted to God. And the question for us is, who or what are we devoted to? And we could be devoted to something other than God. We could be devoted to something other than His kingdom. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, who or what am I devoted to? And we look at the, the to- how we spend our time, how we spend our resources, how we... How we spend not just resources of, of, of money, that's certainly there too, but energy as well. And if we look at our money and we look at our energy and we look at what our lives are all about and what we talk about and, and, and everything that we do, is it really about Jesus and his kingdom or is it more about us 
and our comforts or our pleasures or our joys in this life. And certainly God brings wonderful joys to experience in this life. He brings blessings to experience in this life that are awesome. But if that's what we're devoted to, if we're devoted to God's gifts rather than the gift giver, we get off track and we get in danger and we begin to forget what it means to be dedicated and devoted to God. So he talks about holiness. He talks about godliness, which godliness is a reverent mindfulness and loyalty and obedience toward God. That's what godliness is. So a godly, uh, uh, an ungodly person doesn't think about God. Which leads to what? I don't know God. I don't know His commandments. I don't care about His commandments. I care about what makes me happy. A godly person thinks about God. So a godly person has mindfulness of God. And especially when you're alone and temptations come because you're alone, there's no accountability around you in that moment. A godly person goes, God is here. God is watching what I'm doing, how I'm living. Even if my family or my church or my friends have no idea, God is here. That's the godly Godly mindfulness. It's a way of life and a way of thinking. It goes, God is here. God is watching. Eternity is real. And so then I have a loyalty not governed by anything externally. A loyalty that's governed by the way that I think because of what I believe about eternity and about God. That's what godliness is. And that mindfulness of God leads to what we would call in the old word, Piety or religion, right? Which is really just about a a devoted obedience, a loyal obedience that comes from the right reverent thinking about who God is. So holiness, a dedicated devotion to God. Godliness, a reverent mindfulness and loyalty to obedience toward Him. And then he says, waiting for the day, which is a heart attitude and mental state of believing. Okay? Believing and hoping in and for and praying for the coming like like Jesus taught us to pray right your kingdom come your will be done where on earth as it is in heaven not get me out of here and get me to heaven so i don't have to be here anymore right that's not really the the view the view is that i'm going to bring the new heavens and the new earth here and the kingdom is going to be here so it's a prayer that god would come here not we would escape there Right? So it's a different type of mindset, but it's waiting for and longing for that coming. So it's a heart attitude and a mental state of believing in and hoping in and hoping in a biblical sense. Isn't I hope it doesn't rain or rains today. It's, it's a confident expectation. This will take place in the future. It's just a matter of when. That's what biblical hope is. So he says waiting for, having that heart and mental attitude. And then also hastening the day, he says. Hastening the day then adds this fourth element, which is a body, individually, corporately, that's engaged in the battle. It's engaged in the work of the kingdom. We are ambassadors, going back to what Paul said, right? And we we have this life given to sacrificial love for God and neighbor. That's what hastening the day is about. Because the hastening the day is connected to the mission. Jesus was about his father's business. As we hasten the day, when you study it in Scripture, 
it, it speeds up the day, so to speak. It's connected to gospel proclamation. It's connected to kingdom work. And so the idea you get here is, hey, be devoted to God. Be mindful and obedient to who he is and his commandments. Pray, hope, believe in your heart and in your mind and get your heart and mind devoted to God and his kingdom and be about the Father's business. That's what Peter's saying here. Remember this call to a godly life and that's what it looks like. That's what it is. And when you look back in chapter 1, he's summarizing here what really the whole first part of chapter 1 is talking about, right? Which is that, I'll read some of it, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through these promises. And because of this, be diligent to confirm your calling and election and add to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control, right? He's, this is what he's saying. That's a kind of an expanded version of what he's saying with holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening. He's really capturing and summarizing what he said in chapter 1. I was going to give a little subpoint for the sake of time. I'm going to skip it. Number three. He wants us to remember... remember Peter wants us to remember the danger of deception. So if you look at uh, chapter 3 again, verse 15, the second part, the first part he says, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation. That was kind of my sub point that I'm going to skip, but I just want to give a quick thought on it. Because sometimes we go, why are you waiting around, God? Why don't you just come back, right? And what he's encouraging us to, to do is, is as Titus, if you read the book of Titus, you see this clearly. It's like, hey, Jesus came. He's coming again. In between, we have this attitude, this, this mindset that, that God's patience is to give opportunity for more people, more generations, and even ourselves to be saved, to grow, and to change. And that God actually wants to, in a sense, come and bring justice and vengeance and righteousness. But he's being patient in order to save. And you see that here in a snapshot, but you also see it um, in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, and you guys can study this on your own. But he basically says, hey, don't look this over this fact that one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And, and that he says he is being patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it shows why it shows the heart of God and why he's waiting to come is so that all as many as possible could reach repentance. So so remember that when your, your heart gets wrapped up in, oh, come on, why aren't you coming, God? So that's kind of the first part of verse 15. But then the second part of verse 15, he says, just as our beloved uh, Paul wrote according to his wisdom, and he goes down, and then he says what? The ignorant and unstable twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And, but then he says, you knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error, in verse 17, of lawless people and lose your own stability. And really here he's again summarizing very quickly the anchor of the scriptures and the danger of false teachers and deception, which is what chapter 2 is really all about. And, and if you go back to chapter 2 and you look at starting in like verse 17... 
uh, or even verse 18, he says, For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passage of the flesh. And, and he continues to explain what these are. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, massive, major, important principle in Scripture, whatever overcomes a person, or uh, to that he is enslaved. And Paul talks about that as well, that you're enslaved to what you do, essentially. And, and so that's really what he's summarizing here. He's saying these people twist the Scriptures, they boast loudly, they promise freedom, but the outcome is really that they're giving place for you to just live in the temporary pleasures and passions of this world rather than for the future kingdom. And he said, if you really look deeply at those men, those false teachers, they're actually just enslaved to what they are overcome by. They're not really free. They're promising you freedom in the temporary sense. But that's going to wash away in the judgment of Christ. And so don't be drawn away in their deceptiveness. And this can look a lot of different ways, right? It can look a lot of different ways in the sense that a type of preaching grace that doesn't address sin is one way that it, it, it can be... Um, it can be taught today. A type of Christianity that encourages the pursuit of wealth and power and, and, and temporary enjoyment of things at the expense of God's kingdom and at the expense of self-sacrificing for the mission uh, of God's kingdom. And, it's, and it looks like uh, something that essentially causes mar to the name of Christ because the outward the, 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 the world looks on uh, or young believers look on and they go well I thought Jesus freed you from sin but you're not willing to repent of it you're continuing in it or I thought that our life wasn't supposed to be about serving and pursuing money and riches and fame but that's exactly what you're doing I'm confused right but in the name of Christ there's a message that allows us to live exactly like the world while still claiming Christ. There are messages. And so identify those messages and run from them. Don't be deceived by false teachers. And it's not, he, he gives us a couple things. I'm not going to go in depth here, but he gives us a couple things to, to remember. He says, remember the scoffers, as I read earlier. That's at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 2, right? Remember the scoffers. That's kind of people outside the church, men and women who ridicule and mock and look down on those who believe and obey God's word. We're always going to have that. It's persecution. Uh, why would you believe in God, like all the bad stuff that's happening in the world? Why would you, why would you decide that you're not going to um, you know, sleep with your girlfriend because uh, that's way more fun and easier than waiting till you're married? You know, you're ridiculous. All of these types of things, whether it has to do with money, whether it has to do with pleasure, whether it has to do with fame or power, they will ridicule us for not pursuing or running after or spending our lives on those things. The world will do that. We're going to look world, weird to the world. But also, he says, not only will scoffers come, but false teachers will come. So men and women from inside the church or those who claim the name of Christ are also a danger. They will teach twisted and perverted versions of God's word and God's message. 
even to the denial of Christ. And we're seeing that today. We're seeing the denial even of the deity of Christ by those who claim Christ. Those who claim to be Christians. And so, whether it's scoffers from the outside or false teachers from the inside, we have to be careful to recognize and not be deceived. Not capitulate to the pressure of scoffers. Not buy into the message of false teachers. But remain true, which leads me to my last point, which is number four, that Peter reminds us how we are to overcome the scoffing, how we are to overcome the false teachers, how we are to to keep in full view the reality of eternity and the motivation of godly living is really anchored in the truth, is to remember to keep your soul, your heart, your mind, your life anchored in the truth of God's word and in the promise of his coming. And that's really what uh, verse 18, the last verse here, talks about. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? He says, so don't buy into the lies of the lawless people who are twisting scripture, but rather grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is, again, a reference back to chapter 1, where he says to confirm your calling and election, and to pursue with diligence and to remember the prophetic word that was given to us through the apostles. And you see this again and again. And actually, in, in, um, if, if you ask the question, right, he uses the term grow here. So, so how do you grow in the knowledge of Jesus? How? And hopefully we all know this, but to remind you, as Peter is, right, the scriptures are how we grow. The word of God is how we grow. And it's a huge theme of Peter actually in 2 Peter and in the first book, 1 Peter. is that Peter wants to build confidence in us that the Word of God is true. He wants to build our confidence in the Word of God that it's true. And he wants to teach you to turn to the Word of God in the face of scoffers and in the face of false teaching and deceptive teachings. Because, hey, they're not just going to come out and tell you blanket, this is what we're teaching, right? It's deceptive. It has partial truths in it that lead us away. And you know that this is a big theme from Peter because in 1 Peter chapter 2-3, he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And he's speaking again of the scriptures here. And in, in uh, 1 Peter 3, 1, or um, in uh, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 2, so this same chapter, if we look at verses 1 through 2, he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I have stirred up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the what? The predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord. Basically, the Word of God. Remember the Word of God. 2 Peter 3.9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. Again, promise is about the Word of God. God said it. This is the revelation of God. He's not slow to fulfill His promise. Or you skip down a few more verses uh, from verse 9 down into verse 13 and 15 and 16 says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heaven and the new earth. And you keep going down, he says uh, about Paul, what does he call Paul's writings? 
Scripture, which is the Word of God. And so you see all through here the promise of God, the promise of Christ, the Scriptures that have been written confirming all pointing back to the holy prophets, the prophetic word. And really, if you go back to chapter 1 again, that whole section in chapter 1, verses 16, all the way through 21, he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice born from heaven by him, the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to what? Pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, comes from man. But no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so if we're going to Keep in view this reality of eternity. If we're going to, in that view, live holy and godly. If we're going to guard our hearts against the, the, the pressure and the, the scoffing and the weirdness and being made fun of and live in out of place in this world as ambassadors and be guarded against the deception of false teachers, we have to be rooted and grounded in the prophetic word. Our souls have to be anchored to the truth. So trust the clarity of Scripture. And trust it even when you don't understand. As he said, some things in Paul, they're hard to understand. Right? Peter even said it in the Bible. Right? Like They're hard to understand. We're not going to understand everything. We're not going to understand how the sovereignty of God works or how the responsibility of man with that sovereignty works. We might not understand all the details of Paul's writings or of Peter's writings or of the Scripture. But that doesn't matter. We believe in the one who wrote them and we put our faith in him and we don't have to understand in order to obey what is clear in scripture. And so we are to trust the clarity of scripture, trust even when we don't understand and endure with patience to the end, holding the promise of his return in that firm confidence that it will happen. So in conclusion, I want to give you this this one last verse, Hebrews, if you want to go there, it's Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we're surrounded by many who have gone before us and are looking down as a cloud of witnesses, like in a coliseum or massive stadium, looking at those in the, in the game. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every hindrance. It might not be a sin, but it's hindering me from my mission. Right? So let's lay aside the weights and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God on the throne. And so, with this in mind, we 
with eternity in mind. We look to Jesus who set the example, who for the joy that was set before him, for the vision of what the cross was going to complete, it was set before him. Eternity was set before him. The souls of those who would be saved were set before him. And because of that view, because of that joy that he imagined in his mind as a man, right? Not, not just that he was God, but as a man who had to suffer and die for that joy that was set before him. He endured the pain and the suffering and the shame and all that it included. Suffering always comes before glory. As you always hear, right? Pain before gain. The job is always before the joy of what the job produces. Of the reward for finishing the job. And so like Jesus, may we for the joy that's set before us, for the reality and vision of the eternity, eternal joy. I'm telling you, heaven and the new earth and the new kingdom and Jesus on the throne and perfection is going to be awesome. It's going to be so joyful. And it's not a bunch of fat cherubs sitting on clouds. It is reality. It is more real than we live here. It is going to be amazing to be in that world, hiking those mountains, swimming in that water, building stuff and cities and amazing things that we'll do in the new heaven and the new earth, the amazing food we will eat, the amazing fellowship we will have forever, working, loving, playing, enjoying God and each other. It's a joy that's set before us. We have to 